0: If you don't have a Bible, I'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles. Let's get the house lights up if we could. Uh, We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, little racks beneath the seats. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, we would absolutely love for you to take that one home. And the reason for that is incredibly simple. We believe that God uses His Word to give us Himself. Like that's the chief place that we come to know God and we want you to know God. And so if you don't have a Bible of your very own, that's kind of like a not good thing. And so we want to fix that this morning. It's a cheap paperback, but you can come talk to me if you want a real nice one. We have a lost and found. (laughs) Some of them are fancy. Some of them have gold around the pages. Just scratch the name off, call it yours. It's great. They're not using it. Um, So Isaiah chapter 1, we are in a series all this year long uh, that we're calling The Story of God. And the premise of the series is really, really simple. We believe that the entire Bible is about Jesus. Full stop. Like, not just a piece of the Bible, not just the New Testament, not just the Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. We believe that every word of the Bible is about jesus that that even the stories that we would say are about other guys like like noah or moses or ladies like esther or ruth or guys like jonah we believe that even their stories are really honestly if read correctly about jesus that you walk away from their stories not impressed with how awesome jonah is because let's face it jonah's not that awesome all right but you walk away from their stories going man our god is a good god And man, Jesus is moving him and shifting him and posturing him. And I'm so excited for what Jesus is doing. That if you read the Bible correctly, you walk away with a very big picture of who Jesus is and what he's doing. Uh, But there's a distinction between me saying that and me proving that. And so to flesh out that thesis, what we've been doing all year long is walking through the major characters of the Old Testament and, and looking at their life story and asking the question, how does their life point us to the much larger and much more beautiful story of God? How does their life and their circumstances point us to Jesus? But here's the deal. That can feel like a daunting question, right? especially if you don't have a, a, a large familiarity with the Bible. If, you don't, if you're not a, an, a regular Bible reader, maybe you're coming into this new, with, with I don't know what your church background is, but maybe you come to that and you're like, I don't know. And so to break that down, to make that an easier thing to approach for us, we, we've taken up the practice of breaking it, breaking it, breaking it, into four smaller questions and those questions for those of y'all who have been here for a while are pretty simple how is this person raised up what made this person a seemingly bad choice what did god do to redeem them and how does their story preach the gospel i'm of the opinion that if we answer those four questions successfully faithfully that we actually position ourselves in such a way that the big daunting story of god question is actually not hard at all it's actually really really easy to answer so y'all ready to jump into it today Who's our character Isaiah, everybody with the bulletin, got it right. All right, Isaiah, the prophet you probably read the most from, but know the least about. But let's round out his profile. The righteous prophet, a truer vision of personal sin, and the gospel in 700 B.C. You ready to look at question number one? All right, Isaiah 1, verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos which he saw concerning Judah in, Jeru- or in Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And I'm sure y'all are all real excited about that sentence. So right out of the gate we learned a couple of things, a couple of important things. Number one, Isaiah is a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah. So why is that important? Well, because we're actually in new territory for this series. Like we, We've been talking for the last several weeks now about uh, the state of affairs in what's called the divided kingdom. you got the, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, after uh, after Solomon dies, his son immediately messes everything up and the kingdom divides in two, and now they're on these two different trajectories. Right? And so we have spent all of our time since then. We talked about Elijah. We talked about Jonah. We talked about Hosea. We have spent every bit of our time since that moment talking about what has been going on in the northern kingdom that's where all three of those guys story play out in the northern kingdom so what's been going on in the southern kingdom during that time well it would be wrong to say nothing but that's also not far from the truth either they had a good king and then they had a kind of bad king then they had kind of a mediocre king and then they had a good king again and it's just been kind of back and forth like that for the last 200-ish years kind of uh, whatever good season not so good season back to a good season rise and decline rise and decline which leads us to the second thing to point out that these four kings uzziah jotham ahaz and hezekiah are very familiar names how many of y'all were here last week class do those names look familiar they're the exact same four kings that we talked about during two Hosea. Hosea was last week. Those of you who didn't know the answer that weren't here. Hosea was last week. These are the exact same four kings of Judah that we talked about when we talked about Hosea doing his thing up in the northern kingdom. The exact same four kings. Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So what does that mean for our purposes today? Well, as the northern kingdom is falling apart, as God is removing them because of their blatant idolatry and their failure to repent, right? That's what Hosea's story was about. We, we said ho- last week that Hosea was the prophet that not just predicted the fall of the northern kingdom, but watched it happen. He was the guy that had the graveyard shift as everything was falling apart. And so as the northern kingdom of Israel is falling apart, and as God is taking away their nation because of their unrepentant sin, well, Judah has their own little problems. And God's going to raise up a prophet there too. Judah is at a low point as well. So God raises up the prophet Isaiah. Here's the deal, though. Judah's low point looks a little differently than Israel's low point. Let me show you what I mean. Look at verse 2. How was Isaiah raised up? Verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Aha, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They they are utterly estranged. Verse 5, why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head. There is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion, that's a little nickname for them, and the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in the vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, which sounds like a quaint place to live like a besieged city. Verse 9, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Verse 10, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. All right, so regardless of how, uh, the fact that things have been mostly quiet for the, ne- for the southern kingdom of Judah, regardless of the fact that things have kind of been ho-hum and just a little back and forth, Isaiah says here that there's some grave sin that's been creeping in them under the surface. And things are starting to unravel, and if it were not for the hand of God, gracious hand of God, withholding the full punishment they deserve, they would end up just like Sodom and Gomorrah. Like, like do you think they remember how that story played out? Like do you, think, do you think that's a fresh wound for them? Do you think that's been passed down generation after generation? generation. They know exactly what went on there. Not exactly a friendly picture, right? Well, let's shelve that for a second and keep reading. Verse 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, God says, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams into the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Verse 12, when you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Verse 15, when you spread out your hands... I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. But God asked them, Who has required of you this trampling of my courts? In other words, who asked you to come into my presence and do all these religious things? Who asked you to come in here? Who asked you to, to, to make sacrifices and burnt offerings to me? Who asked you to to light incense and celebrate the Sabbath? What's the obvious answer? God did. God's the one that commanded all these things, right? God commanded every single one of these things. God commanded the the lighting of incense. God commanded that they enter his courts with singing and praise, right? This is exactly what God told them to do. And they have been doing it. That is precisely the one that required them to come to him in this way. And for generations now, they've done exactly that. They keep coming season after season after season. They keep doing the worshipful acts that God told them to do. See, as the northern kingdom split away and ran off into terrible sin, Judah was the good kid that pretty much kept his nose clean. They were the good kids. Judah pretty much held on. Right? I mean things have gone relatively well for them. They're the ones who were still claiming to follow God. That doesn't mean that they didn't have their sinful and idolatrous moments. They very much did. But compared to Israel in the north. I mean, isn't it always nice being the kid that doesn't get into trouble? Like I I got a brother. I look pretty good in mom and dad's eyes. <laughs> it's a nice gig. Being the one who, who's relatively quiet. So how exactly is he fulfilling the religious actions that God commanded them to do turn into a, quote unquote, trampling of his courts? Where's the disconnect there? Well, look at verse 16. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, 17, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. So even though Judah has been relatively, kept up relatively well with the obedience to God and the commands that, that God gave them about worship and idolatry, even though they're relatively doing better than everybody else around them, there was still great sin in that camp. And and that sin fleshed itself out here, we see, through acts of injustice. Through acts of injustice. The active oppression of others around them. See, the culture at large had had turned into this thing where everybody was looking to take advantage of everybody else. And when you create a culture like that, well, the people who, who end up getting the short end of the stick are the ones who have the least resources, the ones who are the most vulnerable positions, right? For starters, we see here the comment, to, to the command to fight for the cause of the widow and the orphan. And the implication there, if we, if we don't know the, the whole story, is just to say, well, I guess they weren't doing that well enough. They need to take a step up and be better at those things. But based on what we know about Isaiah's world and what he was walking through, it's more likely that this group of people, these two groups of people, were actively being taken advantage of. Actively being taken advantage of. Uh, the cheap way that this was done in the Old Testament times was through uh, having two sets of weights for grace. Have you come across this in your Old Testament reading? Over and over again, God says, hey, you shall not have two sets of weights. So what's going on there? Well, I- if you're going to go buy some grain, you're going to go to somebody who can sell you grain, right? And they're going to have a scale, a balance, and they're going to have a weight on one side, and they're going to pour grain into the other side until it comes into to equilibrium, right? And then you pay the agreed upon price for that amount of grain. So what happens if you want to take advantage of somebody? You take a weight that says something, and you shave a little bit off, so it's a little bit lighter, and that bounces out a little faster, Right? Hollow that sucker out a little bit more, it bounces out even faster. In Amos chapter eight, uh, it even says at one point like that God gets onto him there for sweeping up the chaff with the grain. And dumping it in the bag too. So that bag fills up a lot faster. Actively taking oppression of people because listen, like who's not gonna be able to fight against that? The one who doesn't have the means to go somewhere else to get the grain, right? The one who's kinda stuck in that position have to pay whatever it is you say to have to pay and so over and over again throughout the old testament we see it multiple times in the old testament god tells them verbatim hey don't have two sets of weights don't have two sets of weights in chapter 58 of isaiah it says this in verse 6 is this not the fast that i choose to loose the bonds of wickedness to undo the straps of the yoke to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke so there was a provision for slavery uh during old testament israel days and we can talk about why at another time uh but but what we see here is not the provision something is morphed out of that into something else something that's now defined by marked by wickedness and oppression it gets even better than that because look at chapter 59 in verse 14 it says this justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away for truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Isaiah says that the culture has gotten so bad that even choosing to abstain from evil and instead walk in righteousness puts a giant target on your back. You are actively making yourself the target, the prey for everybody else. That's a fun neighborhood, right? The everyday culture. The everyday culture here is that everybody's taking advantage of everybody else. The everyday culture of God's chosen people have gotten so sinful that to choose righteousness instead of sin is a failure to preserve yourself. Even though they've kept up with the outward religious actions, Everyone is taking advantage of everybody else. Here. So follow me here. The perfect, the perfect of God's chosen people. Remember, God in Exodus brings them to the foot of Mount Sinai in chapter 19 of Exodus He says, You will be my people. You will feed for me a kingdom, a priest, and a holy nation. Which means their job, their one job to do was to be a depiction of the character of God to the Gentile nations surrounding them. Their one job to do has not changed since the book of Exodus. Their job is still to be a picture of God to the outside. And the picture that they're sending at this point in history is that God's people are looking to take advantage of at class. You might want to take a shot at how the God of infinite compassion and infinite mercy and infinite perfect justice feels about this little scenario. So God raises up the prophet named Isaiah to speak to his mind. Isaiah is going to be the prophet who boldly calls the hypocritical religious Do all the outward religious actions, but the hearts are obviously far, far from you. And Isaiah's going to be the guy who saves you. The guy of uh-huh. This is what we've been called to do. We're going to say, every pastor wants to be an Isaiah. Like, right? Every pastor wants to be an Isaiah. Every pastor wants to stand in the gap and speak for the Lord and raise the impoverished. Call the religious to righteousness. I kind of want Isaiah's job. That's only because I've read chapter one. If you've been around for any length of time for this series, you know that we've got a second question answered this morning, don't we? How or what made Isaiah a seemingly bad choice? Flip over to Isaiah chapter six. God is going to give Isaiah a vision of pretty much... Much bigger than Isaiah. Isaiah 6, "Look at verse one. In the year that King Uzziah died, so Uzziah was the first king he he mentioned, right? So this is the very beginning of Isaiah's ministry. This is Isaiah's call to be a prophet. Okay. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the, upon the throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Verse two. Above him stood the seraphim." type of angel, each had six wings and with two, or with two he covered his face and with two he covered his feet and with two he flew and one called to another and said holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory verse 4, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was still with me. what did you dream about last night? I say it is given a picture of something much bigger than Isaiah here, right? What's going on? God gives him a vision of, of himself sitting in his heavenly throne. And the scene is awful in the original sense of the word. It fills him with dread. It fills him with dread. And so Isaiah starts grasping at anything he can to try to explain this to his audience, right? He, he says this thing about the train of the grove filled the temple. So what's that about? Well, the Isaiah, the temple was the biggest thing he'd ever seen. I mean, think about it, it was a giant building on top of a mountain and its explicit purpose, the intended purpose of the temple was to show the world how awesome and how amazing and how big and how elaborate the God that was worshipped there was. Solomon's temple was a gigantic deal. And here, Isaiah goes, the train of his robe alone filled the temple. You can't contain this God. He's too big. He's far too big. They described these weird angel creatures that are flying around, seraphim or the fiery ones he called them and their job their job is to spend all day every day for all of eternity shouting back and forth holy, holy, holy that's the job Isaiah tells us here in verse 4 in verse 4 but the foundations of the heavenly throne room tremble at the sound of their voice. Like, like I've been accused of having a voice that carries too often. Some of you know this about me. Very rarely do I get in trouble for being too be quiet. I'm not causing earthquakes, right? These guys are the Bible seems to paint the picture, that there are two kind of basic categories of angels, and I know you have given that. We've got two basic kind of categories. Cherubim, or cherub and seraphim. Uh, so, what we normally see in the Bible is a cherub, right? Uh, don't think the little tchotchke on your grandma's sh- bookshelf, right? No naked angel baby, right? Flaming sword guarding the entrance of the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. That's a cherub. These are the guys that, every time they show up, they're like, no, 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 don't die. We're not here to slaughter you all. We come with good news of great joy. Those are the cherubs. Nobody wants to cross paths with the cherubs because you lose. But here the, we see this other type, the seraphim, and, and they're somehow, they somehow seem to be scarier still, right? Like they've got this booming voice that, that makes the ground quake, right? And they've got six wings and and... and like, does anybody want to get in a fight with a seraphim? I don't. But there's something interesting that Isaiah points out here in verse 2. Look back at it. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he, what? Okay, so follow me here. These super intimidating angel creatures. The creature that makes him. Foundations of the heavenly throne room quake and tremble at the sound of their voice. The, the, the creature that has been created for the express purpose, the sole job of shouting God's praises back and forth in his presence for all of eternity. That creature is using two-thirds of his wings to shield themselves from his glory. Why, class? Because the seraphim ain't got nothing on God himself. Right? Or we can say it this way because God is holy. Holy. Holy is a word that we use a lot in church, but it's a word that I think a lot of people would probably struggle to define. Holiness is not a moral statement, it's a statement of value. It's a statement of value. It's not about whether something is clean or virtuous or culturally approved, it's about something being set apart as special. As special. It's about exaltation. And God is infinitely beyond measure, can't contain it or describe it wholly. James 1 tells us that God dwells in unapproachable light. He's so completely other than that there's nothing created to compare him to. Like what category are you going to put him in? He created all the categories, right? How are you going to file him away? He owns the file system. He's so completely other than that there's nothing to compare him to. He is in every way unique and big and beautiful and good and other than. There's nothing that stands by his side. And here we see that his presence alone drives sinless angels. Remember this. It's not a sin issue here. These angels have nothing to be accused of. That his presence alone drives these sinless angels to cower in fear and do everything they can to hide themselves from his gaze. He is so high and exalted that no created thing can draw near him and not be consumed. It is the natural result of coming into his presence. You may be thinking to yourself, well, that sounds awesome, right? What does that have to do with Isaiah and his sin? I mean, isn't that what we're supposed to be talking about right now? Because up to this moment, Isaiah looked like a Boy Scout. Isaiah looked pretty righteous compared to his neighbors, but he has found himself all of a sudden in the presence of someone a little more highly exalted. And Isaiah doesn't get to compare himself to his neighbors anymore. Isaiah looks pretty stinking awesome compared to the hypocritical religious people of his day. He's the guy standing in the gap saying, no, 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 that's not what righteousness looks like. This is what righteousness looks like. But Isaiah doesn't get to compare himself to his hypocritical neighbors anymore. He is now in the presence of something much, much more special. Circumstances have changed, and so in, Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, verse 5, we see Isaiah's incredibly appropriate response to this little dilemma. Verse 5, and I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah's knee jerk reaction to coming into the presence of God is to go, Uh oh, and then hit the deck. That's what he does. I got a problem. What am I going to do? My eyes have seen the king. What am I going to do? The prophet who boldly calls the re- religious to repentance immediately understands where his own sinfulness is. It becomes painfully aware to them, to him in that moment. And he understands exactly what he deserves when he comes in the presence of the king of kings and the lord of lords. He deserves to be crushed. Hear me, in case you're you're sitting there thinking that that's a neat little story for Isaiah. I'm glad Isaiah got that experience. If you were to stand before God today, if you were to stand before God today, outside of the advocacy of Jesus Christ and his righteousness accounted to you, you would have the exact same experience. The exact same experience. Unless you're so bold as to think that your righteousness exceeds that of Isaiah. Anybody want to take him on? See, at the end of days, you won't get to compare yourself to your neighbor either. Whether you think they're a good guy or a not so good guy. You got some things that you can point to and say, at least I'm doing better than him. Your neighbor doesn't play into the equation. One of these days you will stand before a holy God and you are either going to be found sinless or you're not. So despite however you see yourself, here, here's what I can guarantee. Isaiah understands on an intimate level exactly what he needs. Isaiah can't escape it. He, he needs to be redeemed. He has no hope unless he is redeemed. And so our third question this morning is, what does God do to redeem Isaiah? Right? Look at verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Okay, So not only is God worthy of praise because of, the ter- of his terrifying holiness, his otherliness, or otherliness, otherliness? That'll come out in the wash. All right. Not only is he worthy of praise because of that, but here we see that God is worthy of praise because he initiates grace. Right? Isaiah doesn't turn around and beg God to spare him in this moment. He seems to understand that he deserves this. Like, all right, (laughs) this is what happens. He says, woe is me, pitiful, sorrowful am I. Isaiah seems to understand that, well, this is what happens when you find yourself in the presence of the king with simple lips. And yet, God goes to him. Sends the seraphim with a burning coal from the altar to touch his unclean lips he he burns the sin away and cleanses him of his sin next time you think of what it takes to remove your sin coal from the altar is probably not your best hope he burns Isaiah's sin away but Isaiah isn't redeemed for no purpose This isn't just a cute little story. We're building to something. Look at verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am. Send me. All right, class, another pop quiz. Did God forget that Isaiah was there? (laughs) Is anybody brave enough to say yes? (laughs) No. No. The entire reason Isaiah is having this vision right now is because God's leading up to something, right? He is commissioning him to be a prophet. And so why does God act like Isaiah is not there? And every parent in the room already knows the answer to this question, right? Because he wants Isaiah to go, ooh, ooh, pick me, pick me. You've had that conversation with your kids? Isaiah hears of what God is doing and he immediately wants in, right? And who wouldn't? Like God just does something in us, in our heart, deep down. When when we hear of His work around us, like like we've got all these things going on. We've been talking about mission stuff uh, in in with our BCNE stuff. We had a, a missions emphasis offering uh, all of last month. We immediately launched into OCC stuff. All right, we got Lottie Moon stuff. for Four missions happening in December. Man, we are always putting needs in front of you because we trust that God's going to do something in your heart and say, "Ooh, pick me, pick me," right? We don't slow down on that. God's big enough to keep fueling that. Isaiah hears of God's work and he wants in. But before you get ahead of yourself, this is an easy calling. Because look at verse 9. And he, God, said, Go and say to this people, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Verse 11, then I said, how long, O Lord? He said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. So Isaiah is not given an easy calling. God tells him, you will be my great mouthpiece, but no one will listen. I don't think I want Isaiah's job anymore. You will preach, but no one will heed your warning. Judah will ignore you and march right on to its destruction at the hands of Babylon. That's Isaiah's call. Isaiah is not given an easy calling at all, right? In fact, God tells him verbatim that he will be rejected. They're not going to listen to him. In fact, the Bible doesn't tell us how Isaiah died, but if traditional sources can be trusted, uh, the Talmud tells us that. that Isaiah was executed. He was sawn in two by King Manasseh. The king that follows the four kings that we started out talking about at the beginning of our time here. That Manasseh eventually gets tired of his, of his call to righteousness and he, he just, just shuts him up. Saws him in two. In Hebrews chapter 11, that little great hall of faith that we like to talk about in Christian circles and celebrate and write, at least so. In Hebrews 11, uh, where it says they con- some conquered kingdoms and some of the, the great saints stopped the mouths of lions and some quenched the power of the fire. Uh, later down that list, they haven't changed the thought, but the tone changes. It shifts to the negative. And, and it says then that uh, they were, some were stoned and some were sawn in two. We think that the writer of Hebrews is talking about Isaiah there. We think he's talking about Isaiah. So while some of the greats of the Old Testament worked powerfully and did miracles and stopped the mouths of lions and quenched the power of the fire and conquered kingdoms, well, there were others that were literally butchered for doing exactly what God told them to do. They were, they were murdered for doing exactly what God said. God raised up Isaiah to be his messenger for the most gloriously wonderful news the world would ever hear. Not only does Isaiah call people to repentance and to walk away from religious hypocrisy, but he also gets to give us a foretaste of the coming Messiah. He raised Isaiah up to take that message to a people who would ignore him reject him and it seems kill him for it and church it is with that context that we can answer our fourth question for the morning how does Isaiah's story preach God's gospel I want to give you three ways and I'll move quick three ways firstly through Isaiah's message of offered grace we we uh opened up our time looking at isaiah chapter 1 and we we talked about how terrible things were in judah through the first 17 verses but we could have kept reading in verse 18 of chapter 1 where it says this come now god's saying this to his people come now let us reason together says the lord though your sins are like scarlet they shall be white or shall be as white as snow Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. if you are willing and obedient and you shall eat the good of the land, but if you refuse and rebel and you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So God told Isaiah that Judah wouldn't repent, but the offer of salvation still went out to them, right? He says, "Go, preach to them, tell them what's coming. Warn them of what this is. Offer my grace to them. And guys, you don't have to beat Judah you don't have to be judah you can hear the same call and respond very differently right you can respond differently though your sins are like scarlet he is pleased to wash you white pleased to wash you white today's a good day to repent and come to him return to him but there's a second way this story isaiah's story preaches god's gospel it's through Isaiah's message of a coming hope. All throughout Isaiah's 66 chapters. It's a long book. Isaiah constantly is pointing down the pipe to something that's going to fix every problem. Like in chapter 7 verse 14 where he says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name what? It means God with us. Sounds like a good deal. Chapter 9, verse 2 tells us the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Chapter 9, verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called, called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Eleven, one: there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was David's grand, uh, dad. All right, and so uh, you've got this promise of restoring the davidic kingdom and there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit chapter 60 verse 1 and 2 uh, the spirit of the lord god is upon me because the lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor he sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prisons for those who are bound to proclaim the year of the lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our god to comfort all who mourn man i want that Probably my favorite of all, though, is chapter 52, verse 13 and following. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were as uh, astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form, beyond that of children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. And who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Verse 4 is massive. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way and to the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. For by oppression and judgment he was taken away and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with a wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. I've got a lot of that. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge and shall shall his righteous one or shall the righteous one my servant make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities verse 12 therefore i will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors transgressors 700 years before Jesus steps onto the scene, Isaiah gives us the most massive glimpse of a Jesus to come in the Bible. Over and over and over again throughout Isaiah's letter, he's going, something's coming, something's coming, get ready. And he will stand in the gap for us. And he will wipe your sins away. And he will draw you to himself. And he will wipe away every tear. And he will dry every eye. Every poor one will be exalted. Every person who's been oppressed will be lifted back up. Every uh, sinful person will be taken down over and over and over again. Isaiah says, there's someone coming who will fix everything. 700 years before Jesus steps on the scene, Isaiah goes, get ready. He's almost here. He will make payment for our sin. He will wipe away every tear. And he will stand as our advocate before the Father and plead our cause. Oh, but church, that's only the second way that Isaiah's story preaches God's gospel. Because not only is it preached through Isaiah's message of offer grace. Not only is it preached through Isaiah's message of a coming hope. But it's also preached through Isaiah's message of suffering. It's that typological thing all over again we keep coming back to throughout this series, right? Isaiah will bring this message of repentance and a future hope to God's people. And God's people are going to reject him and ultimately kill him. Which means that we have put in the work to answer our big question for the morning, haven't we? There's one overarching theme to our series God raised up blank to be a shadow of a more perfect blank to come in Jesus. And today we learn that God raised up Isaiah to be a shadow of a way better Isaiah to come down the pipe in Jesus. Instead of sending another prophet, another prophet to speak on his behalf, God eventually came himself to speak on his own terms. Jesus stepped onto the scene, but he didn't call us to righteousness. No, 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 he came as our righteousness and called us to himself there's a there's a difference there because even isaiah didn't have enough righteousness to spare neither do you neither do i so jesus steps on the scene and says "Ah, follow me i got this he suffered and died for the for our benefit and he now stands as our advocate before the father Rather than cowering in fear before the Father and being, uh, for being created or for being sinful like Isaiah and some angels had to. Jesus, the eternal Son, accomplished our salvation, struts into the throne room and claims it as his own. Slightly better than Isaiah. The scene was foreshadowed in the days of Isaiah, but Jesus fulfills it all. The story of God is no small deal. Is the greatest action adventure drama the world will ever know. It's in process from the beginning of creation to the very end of this world. God is redeeming and saving for one solitary reason that his entire creation will forever see just how good and just how glorious he is. Church, this is the story of God. So, how do we respond to God's word this morning? Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, your response is to press into God today, right? And you, you do that best by pressing into his words. So consider starting with the book of Isaiah. Listen, it's long. It is really long. But it's also given to us every word of it so that we may know him. And so maybe just call it a feast instead and go after it. But thinking of it as long, think of it as a big meal. We can take another step into this. Maybe Isaiah's story is a lot like yours. You look around, you can feel pretty good about yourself, because I mean Compared to the guy on your right and the guy on your left, you're looking pretty awesome. Beloved, you don't get to compare yourself to the person on your left. They don't get to compare themselves to you. You will one day stand before a holy God and the only thing you will be able to claim in that moment, if you have it, is the alien and imputed righteousness of of Jesus freely given to you. Amen. What do those words mean? It means they don't belong to you. He gave them to you. Today's a good day to repent and lean in. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. Well, have some leaders up front here to talk and pray with you if that would serve you well this morning. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm glad you chose to hang out with us today. You can respond to God's word too. And you do that by meeting the one that this story is all about. Jesus came so that you, he may know you. So repent of your sin today. Press into Jesus. Trust him alone for salvation. Listen, it, you may need to help, have somebody help you walk through that. I'd love to do that. So I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. You come talk to me if that's you. I'd love to walk you through meeting Jesus for the first time. Well, let's every one of us respond to God's word this morning. God, your good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for being a God who is always bigger than we can ever begin to wrap our heads around. You are eternally and forever worthy of glory and honor and praise and thanksgiving. But outside of your grace towards us, we can never draw close enough to you to even give it. You dwell in unapproachable light. You are all consuming fire. Even the sinless angels need to guard themselves from you. And yet, still. You are pleased to make yourself known to us. Not because we're awesome, but because you are. Not because we bring anything to offer you that you don't have. What could we ever offer you that's not yours already? But because you have created us to know you. To be loved by you. To find our rest in you. You've created us to see your beauty and marvel at it. my sin gets in the way of that all the time and like Isaiah I'm tempted to believe I'm doing a lot better than folks I can pick out on the news or down the street from me at the end of the day it'll be you and me you're either on my side or I'm in a lot of trouble God for those of us in here today who know you who love you who are working our tails off to try to to clean some things up God give us grace help us get there draw us close to yourself burn our lips with a coal from the fire if you gotta and God for those of us in here who don't know you would you give us a picture of something much much bigger than ourselves Save people today. Would you call them to yourself in your name?